0: Going, Jordan. What's up,
1: Rob? It's going well. How good. are you?
0: I'm all right. R.I.P. Tina Turner. Sad yeah. news. One yeah. of the absolute best to ever do it. Yeah. What a performer. Yeah, who's simply the best as a performer and also <laughs> as just a really good Tina Turner song. But you know who's not simply the best? Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk.
1: Well, okay. <laughs> wow.
0: I've spent all day workshop in that. Um, I got a team I hired that's good. I went on Fiverr and hired a team of
1: writers to come up with that one yeah so see, so you cross the picket line you cross yeah, the yeah. picket line is what you're saying to hire non-union comedy yeah. writers and that's the product just you just paying them pennies on the dollar you're right mm-hmm. Rob stands in solidarity with the uh, with the big studios exactly
0: thank you these these uh, these uppity <laughs> Hollywood writers they've had it too good for too long okay <laughs> <laughs> got to make sure we support the uh, the the massive corporate conglomerates and their shareholders aren't they who's really Im- more important in this creative process no but um we got we <laughs> okay, just moving on from this we uh, we did get into <laughs> the the Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis Twitter space um would you call that a fiasco or a debacle?
1: I don't know. That's a t- tough characterization. Yeah, it's a
0: clusterfuck. You know, whatever you want to call it.
1: Say it's, like it's a, a disaster. There we go. Like a DeSantis okay. disaster. That's, that's nice. I that's got what... that joke on Fiverr as well. <laughs> Sick.
0: <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about that yeah. um, in our previous episode that came out earlier this week. Um, where you, you also talked to Ben Smith. That was a good
1: one. Yeah, I did. Ben Smith, who founded Semaphore and was the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, joined me to talk about his new book, Traffic, which chronicles the rise and fall of digital media. And we've seen this landscape change throughout our lives, and I know throughout our listeners' lives. You remember when Gawker, Jezebel, and, and early BuzzFeed were dominating your Facebook pages, your Facebook feeds, your Twitter feeds, but... Gawker, in its original iteration, is now dead. BuzzFeed News is shutting down. Jezebel's still there. But another mainstay, Vice, recently just filed for bankruptcy. We'll see what that looks like if it gets acquired by another media company. But things have definitely changed because so much of their model was based around traffic. This book chronicles that race from the start of these sites, how they originated, how they all knew each other, all the founders, for the most part, knew each other and hung out in a bar in New York as they started their own sites. It was a really really fascinating read. We also got into talking about some of the people that spun out of Buzzfeed that worked for Ben, like Baked Alaska and Benny Johnson, and got his thoughts on their post Buzzfeed careers, including for Baked Alaska live streaming from the Capitol during January mm. 6th. So it was a really interesting conversation with Ben. Go check that out, theinsurgents.substack.com. Just 5 bucks a month, you get that episode and an additional episode every week. You get access to all of our premium episodes for our beloved paid interns. We
0: love the paid interns. Yes, yes, we do. Um, and yeah, as I was mentioning, we already did kind of go to to Riff Central on uh, the the disastrous uh, Twitter space thing. But I must say, though, that it is really funny how they're leaning into the whole, like, we broke the internet thing. They're trying to spin it as this big success because, like, 300 thousand concurrent listeners crashed the entire fucking system and they're trying to pretend like it's this this. people were just so excited they're so they're so ready to jump on the desantis train they're just broke the whole thing and they're putting out t-shirts now apparently about this genuinely like the stench of desperation off this campaign already in in day one is palpable
1: saying we broke the internet about Twitter spaces buckling under the weight of 300,000 users. It's such a funny choice because to the internet savvy, they will recognize that's not really that big. No. Like, I mean, just to go back to conver- my conversation with Ben, we talked about uh, the Steele dossier. And when they published that, the, the traffic that they saw was colossal. And in another BuzzFeed story, you remember the dress. That was their biggest traffic day of all time. We're talking like, Tens, if not hundreds of millions of views and shares on these pieces. Like that really is breaking the internet. Something like that is colossal. 300,000 concurrents on a live stream isn't even the biggest of the past year. But so the internet savvy will recognize how ludicrous of a framing that is. And then the ones who won't, you know, the senior citizens, the boomers who make up a large share of the Republican electorate, they're not going to know what the fuck you're talking about
0: <laughs> no and you know you could have just done your campaign announcement on like talk radio which goes out to way more people than <laughs> 300,000 and you know is a technology that has been working pretty well for a really long time you know it's not like this is this new thing the idea of tra- transmitting audio it's like magic transmitting audio to hundreds of thousands of people at once It's just this amazing, miraculous (laughs) technology. No, this is actually pretty old, old stuff. We've been able to do this for quite a while. I did also see just just a few minutes ago as well that the FDA has approved the first human trial for Elon Musk's brain chip company, Neuralink. And yeah, given the, the, the exploding rockets and the exploding cars and the exploding social media website, I don't see a downside to people just signing up for that. Just let this guy implant mm-hmm. shit right into your brain, right into your uh, hypothalamus. I think that'd be a great idea yep. and I encourage all our all our, our blue check colleagues and friends to jump on board. Do you wanna be in the do you wanna be first to try this new fantastic technology or don't you? This is what this is the time where you, you gotta, you know, really step forward and step into the next generation. So I encourage everyone to, to sign up for the trials of that.
1: Yeah, and that's why we're proud to announce our partnership with Neuralink, <laughs> and if you go to their site and use promo code INSURGENT, uh-huh. you get 50% off your first implant. So again, promo code INSURGENT over at Neuralink, we're proud to offer 50% off on your Elon Musk brain that's implant. That's
0: right, and now instead of actually listening to the podcast, it'll just you'll get like an intrusive thought, which is just me and Jordan like bullshitting, and you're in your brain, like literally, Talking yeah. to you
1: in your That's sleep. right.
0: Doesn't that sound wonderful? I know that sounds... <laughs> people are going to be very excited about that. And we have to introduce our next guest yeah. coming up, um, Gabby and Felipe, who write the Borderlines Substack. Uh, they do really fantastic work covering uh, border issues and immigration issues in America. They've both been guests on the show before, um, separately, and it was really cool to be able to get both of them to come on. As I was saying, like during this conversation, I think like given we're getting into like election season in America, uh, as hard to believe as that is, it's like kind of on the horizon. And there's going to be a whole bunch of talk about the most important election of everyone's lifetimes and drawing this contrast between the Biden administration and whatever Trump or DeSantis or whoever it is uh, wants to do and probably not DeSantis given how that's been going. Um, But I think it's really important to focus on Biden's uh, record when it comes to immigration, considering the ways that so many liberals uh, were so adamant about holding Trump to account on this issue and... Um, you know, they use this this issue of the migrant crisis on the border and the deplorable state of the, of where these migrants were staying and how horrendous it was. The family separation policy, you know, they use that to attack Trump constantly. They used it to fundraise off of. And now that Biden has been continuing a lot of these policies, not all, but a lot of them, and there's still this crisis going on on the border. There are still people dying on the border. I saw an eight-year-old Panamanian girl died in border patrol custody just this week. Like this is still going on, but for a lot of liberals that made this their like main political issue during the Trump era, they don't seem really interested in in exploring this or unpacking the ways that Biden has really failed uh, on this and has perpetuated a lot of the same violence towards these uh, extremely marginalized people, these migrants and asylum seekers. So I thought it was a really great opportunity to bring back uh, Gabby and Felipe to talk about this. We had some like messed up technical difficulties that I think we tried to fix through the magic of technology and audio editing. I think it's going to be okay. Either way, though, Mm -hmm. it was a really fantastic conversation. I really appreciate the work that Gabby and Felipe do covering this issue. And I'm looking forward to having them back on the show.
1: Yeah, it was really great, and I just, kudos to you for your editing, and we're proud to present AI Felipe. <laughs> That's
0: right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and now that I'm an expert in that, not to get into my past uh, <laughs> trials and tribulations with that yeah, whole technology. We're trying to move on. Yeah. but um, Anyway, folks, I think you're really going to like it. Uh, It was a really fantastic conversation with Gabby and Felipe of the Borderlines Substack, which you should also subscribe to. And Gabby and Felipe will be joining the program right after this. a little bit i'm looking forward to tuning into the good old jimmy butler show this evening
2: me too that's why i have to leave at 7:45. oh wow is that why uh,
0: i thought th- i
2: thought yeah. it was like a
1: work thing
0: yeah no. i thought it was like a like a
2: no yeah. i just am supposed to meet some people and i texted them saying i'm gonna be late
0: i was gonna say i was i thought it was just like a serious thing but it is no it's the not NBA playoffs, serious so, that is serious
2: yeah no it is i mean it's a little it's, serious, it's deadly serious. But- I mean, I, for one, believe that my god king, Jimmy Butler, will lead us to victory. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah. Well, a uh, big time it's day so one Miami Heat fan here as well, so I agree with that. <laughs> big, big fan from way back. I am oh, all about yeah? Heat you? culture. Heat culture. You know I'm sell, always telling people about this.
2: <laughs> they sell Big Face Coffee ice cream at Van Leeuwen. Like, he's really just an international businessman at this point.
1: Yeah. Um, he has been my favorite player to watch all postseason. Just the performances he's been putting on. I mean, rivaled by the first half of LeBron in game four against the Nuggets. Like that first half performance was unbelievable. 31 points, 100% from the free throw line and behind the three point line. He just put on a clinic. But Jimmy Butler has been on another level. I would love I'm hoping for a heat win tonight. So it's a heat Nuggets and they both come in with equal amount of rest but oh my God, I would love to see the Heat win just because I'd love to see Jimmy Butler get a ring.
0: Yeah. It's it's been so entertaining watching him just like will them to victory. And that's the thing, it's like as watching the NBA playoffs without like an emotional stake, all I have is the, the pain of other sports fandoms. So that's all that's really all I have to hold on to. So I've just been fully immersing myself in all the Celtic slander. The Seventy Sixers slander was very entertaining as well. I really enjoyed that. You know, that's all I have. That's all I have to hold on to. Just the misery of their fan bases. Cause I can say, ha, ha, you know, you're, you know what it's like. So I've just been, I just been feeding off that feeding off all that negativity.
2: <laughs> I feel like I have some respect for, for the 76ers, but I have no respect for the city of Boston. Um, and also I'm from Florida. So this is just really important for me. Yeah. Even though I did in the playoff, like my friend's playoffs pool bet against the heat, like a traitor. um because i just didn't believe and look what happened the thing about basketball is that it's the sport with the most not the most but like the most entertaining lore that's why i got into it in the first place um there's just like all these beefs there's all these people who don't like each other sometimes people sleep with each other's wives like you don't you don't get it like that in any other sport it's crazy um, and that's what got me got me into the game when I really needed some gossip in my life. Yeah, it's so important to me, and yet I'm a serious woman. <laughs> uh,
1: but Felipe and Gabby were so happy to have you here together. You write Borderlines, which is a great substack about immigration policy. I think you both have been on the show before separately. Uh, yeah. We're happy to have you both here with us to talk about some of the recent immigration policy news over the past couple of weeks and unfortunately some of the immigration horror stories we've seen over the past couple of weeks. You two do a tremendous job synthesizing what is often very complicated policy maneuvers or rulemaking or changes to uh, different federal guidelines and you with through your writing provide clarity for people who want to understand our immigration system. So we're happy to have you both here. Uh, over the past couple of weeks we've seen, Uh, changes, and ultimately an expiration of this Title 42 program. Now, I'm wondering if both of you, we've talked about Title 42 on the program before, but Felipe, before we were recording, you and I were both talking about how a lot of people hear that that term and don't know what it is. So could both of you explain for listeners, give them a refresher, what Title 42 is and why it's in the news right now?
3: So, so Title 42 is actually a uh, a public health title. So it's one of the titles of the United States Code, you know, federal law. And uh, it actually deals with basically a bunch of different sort of health and public health matters. In fact, a lot of people don't realize, for example, the mask mandates that we had under COVID were, were issued also under Title 42. So like when the... You know, masks on the airplanes when that litigation was ongoing. That was under Title 42. So this particular section of Title 42 that's at issue here is 265. It's a, a sort of a provision of the law that has existed in some form or another in some versions since sort of the late 19th century. So it's been over 100 years. And basically, what it says is, is you know, in broad strokes, that the government has the ability to prohibit the entry of certain you know, people or goods from certain countries where there's a, a high risk of introduction of a communicable disease to the United States, right? So it's not an immigration measure, right? It's not actually, it doesn't say anything about immigration. It doesn't mention immigrants, nor does it say anything about, um, you know, expulsions or asylum or anything like that. But, uh, you know, during the, the sort of early pandemic, March 2020, the Trump administration invoked this, uh, this part of the law to create basically the most restrictive border policy ever. Uh, and in, in, until that point, in, in, until any point actually in, in U S history, in the sense that it, it, you know, it made it so that people who would otherwise be able to seek asylum, begin the process of applying for asylum were denied the ability to even, you know, tender that application and were instead often re- referred for, um, for immediate expulsion without further process. So they didn't go before a judge. They didn't go through any of the kind of other steps that are supposed to happen. uh, You know, when somebody kind of shows up at the border and asks for asylum. And, you know, I mean, I think it's important to note too, like this wasn't something that kind of came out of the blue. In fact, Stephen Miller, the kind of architect of the, of the Trump era, you know, immigration restrictionism policies uh, had, you know, reportedly even wanted to invoke Title 42 before, before COVID, uh, with like measles and some other things, because you know he saw it as a very powerful tool to shut down humanitarian migration. And then, you know, COVID kind of was the perfect excuse. And so for three years, up until you know May 11th was, you know, a couple of weeks ago was kind of the final. Uh, day that the policy was in place. but for three years it was in place. It had kind of shifting restrictions. So a federal judge at one point said that it couldn't apply to unaccompanied minors. and there were certain exceptions and such. But for three years it was used to conduct, you know millions of, of expulsions at the border of people who would otherwise have been able to access the asylum uh, system. And so that's kind of you know what ended recently, uh, but you know has been replaced at this stage with kind of other policies uh, that the Biden administration put into place to kind of mimic or, or sort of have a similar set of restrictions. So it's not like we're back to normal processing now, it's just kind of a different paradigm.
2: Yeah. It's been around since, I mean, some of, some version of this has been around since at least for sure, like 1907. So in practice, title 42 has basically, or did basically allow for CBP to almost immediately turn people away. Um, you could cross the border, get processed um, by which it was just like they'd kind of like take you in and then spit you back out across the border. And that was kind of under the best circumstances is that you would be sent back immediately where you crossed. Um, under worse circumstances, CBP would in some instances detain people for days or up to weeks and then send you to a different part of the border um, and then expel you there in what was called like a lateral expulsion, which is an offshoot of lateral deportations. Um, which are basically like designed to prevent people from attempting similar like routes if they're crossing between ports of entry from hiring the same smugglers from um relying on this like same kind of networks that they were relying on to get into the United States um but that can be really dangerous for people, especially for people who paid for smugglers, because if you've paid for someone, say in Tijuana and then you were sent back through texas um. Those aren't those two different routes aren't controlled by the same smugglers. And increasingly, smugglers are tied to cartels just because of the entire kind of situation in northern Mexico right now, which means that people who were expelled, especially people who were expelled laterally, were put in really, really significant danger a lot of the time. I actually just interviewed somebody yesterday for a story I'm working on who was expelled three times under Title 42 with his um, family. And each time they were expelled to a different port of entry, they were like taken into CBP custody, put on a plane, flown across the border, and then like expelled into a completely different border patrol zone. And that was intentionally designed to um, discourage them from trying again. Um Another important distinction between um, expulsions and deportations is that deportations carry a bar on re-entry um, and they can only really happen in most circumstances unless you're going through expedited removal um, after you go through kind of a deportation hearing process. Expulsions are not a legal designation. It's not like a judge orders you expelled, you're just thrown back across the border, but, This weird kind of perverse benefit came about where, because there was no legal record, there was no legal bar on re entry when you were expelled, you could just try over and over and over again. And if you knew that, you know, CBP or Border Patrol would find you, um, you would maybe be encouraged to try a more remote or more dangerous route to avoid them finding you. Um, Whereas before Title 42 was put in place, people who were asking for asylum. Would intend like they would just cross into the United States and a lot of times would just sit there and wait. They would maybe even call 911 to have Border Patrol come pick them up because their goal was to do it as quickly and um, easily as possible to avoid these dangerous routes to like turn themselves in so that they could then ask for asylum.
1: You know, one of the things that I saw uh, some coverage about recently uh, and one of the ways that migrants can claim asylum is with this CBP1 app. And uh, it's it just, you, you both in, in Borderlines talked about how this is just another iteration of, you know, this a technological solution to these types of problems. But it's been hamstrung by different issues, you know, tech issues, it's kind of wonky. Then I also saw earlier today, Ken Paxton in Texas is challenging the Biden administration over its use of this app. So could you explain for people what this is, how it's used or should be used if it works, and the legal challenges to this app?
2: So when CBP started requiring people to make appointments via this app, it was only available, I believe, in English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole. You could only access it if you had a smartphone. And there were just over 700 appointments every day. And there are tens of thousands of people all across the Mexican border who are waiting, trying to get appointments on this app. It was really, really glitchy. It's prone to crashes. And because there are so few appointments, um, people would all kind of log on at the same time, try to get appointments. The appointments would fill up pretty much immediately. And then they would have to just try again the next day. What's really, really interesting about the Republican reaction to this app is that they have described it as a concierge service for undocumented immigrants they have said you know like they're rolling out the red carpet for them like they're letting them just log on and say I want to come to the United States and then you can just come right in where as in practice this app is really really restrictive and really limiting as to who can access it both because of the need to have a smartphone that's connected to the internet because of language barriers and also just because of the limited number of appointments that are available they recently increased it to a thousand a day um, and then you have to wait, you know, after you've secured your appointment for days or weeks to actually go to your appointment.
3: You know, one thing to note, right, is like CBP one, um, you know, the app itself actually existed before it started being used in this way. Um, but you know, it, it kind of like, I mean, people have even called it like ticket master for asylum now, right. You got to remember also, it's not like you can apply for asylum using CBP one. It only allows you to schedule a, an appointment to like, begin the application that otherwise is supposed to be kind of just uh, you know sort of available if you reach US soil uh, and I think that it's kind of part of this this kind of trend of, of like using technology to kind of you know make a show of sort of efficiency and sort of you know managed humanitarian pathways and sort of all these things that oftentimes are just kind of repainting sort of Trump error restriction as policies, but kind of, you know, adding this sort of veneer of like, oh, this is kind of a technological solution. This is efficiency. This is the future. Uh, you know, Gabby had a great article in the verge, uh, you know, last year that was about kind of also the virtual wall and, you know, they have drones and sensors. There's even this company called Andoril, which is that a uh, little weirdo who did the Oculus uh, Palmer lucky. He, he went on to find, found this, uh, also this kind of weird, you know, Lord of the Rings obsessions with a lot of these, uh, you know, cameraless strange strange folks, because, you know, Peter Tier has has Palantir and all this stuff. But anyway, I mean, you know, it's all kind of like, you know, border security theater. And so CBP one, really what it does, and we've written about this in Borderline, is it kind of replicates uh actually a Trump era policy that was that was declared unlawful as well called metering, where, you know, it used to be more ad hoc where it's sort of just like border officials would say, oh, you know, know, we're actually only taking X number of people today. We're only allowing X number of people to come in. And migrants even started keeping their own lists of like who was next to like be able to claim asylum and all these sorts of things. Uh, And so, you know, CBP-1 with its kind of the, you know, appointments is just taking this kind of ad hoc policy that was declared unlawful and making it like a formal, you know, tech-driven policy. But it's the same thing, right? It's kind of still kind of like, part of this effort to shift also the the kind of the new normal towards this more restrictionist approach.
2: I just wanted to add really quickly, um, this is veering a little bit away from Title 42, but a good comparison to um, how the Biden administration is kind of making this tech based metering, its new border management strategy is the way that it talks about the wall. When Biden was running for president, he was like, you know, it's barbaric to have a wall it's inhumane to have a wall. If I'm president, we won't have a wall. We'll have sensors and drones and all of these fancy high-tech solutions that are actually more effective than a wall. And people ate that up. And this is kind of the same thing. It's like this tech-based managed approach that is essentially the same as a Trump policy. Like, more expensive than metering like even from like just a purely like logistical standpoint
0: we're disrupting the concentration camp space
2: no exactly <laughs> and then there's also all this benefit of the doubt that they've been getting for for years where people will be like oh well they're, they they're inheriting trump's mess so of course they have to they have to fix it it's going to take time but he's been president for 2 years and he had 2 years to figure out a way to get rid of title 42 that didn't involve reinstating Trump policies.
3: The the kind of consensus policy now is sort of this border restrictionism thing. Um and you know, Biden, I think early on really took up the mantle of kind of uh, you know, oh, we're gonna reverse all of the you know, the Trump era abuses and we're gonna do all this stuff. Uh but for one part, I think he, you know, he is terrified and the administration is terrified of being branded kind of open borders. And obviously this is something that's gonna happen anyway, right? which was something we you know we've argued multiple times i mean i've joked that you know uh joe biden could be personally setting landmines all along the you know the Rio Grande, and uh you know the the rhetoric on on the republican side would be almost identical because ultimately what what these folks want is is kind of full scale um hermetically sealed borders particularly to to humanitarian migrants whom they view as kind of having uniformly invalid claims uh, and, and, you know, the thing about kind of asylum is that from a very pure legal perspective, they might be right that a lot of these claims are technically meritless in the sense that, like, it's actually a pretty narrow program, which is something also that people don't necessarily understand, right? The, the, um, uh, the, calif- the, the sort of the qualifying criteria involve persecution based on race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion or membership in a particular social group with the latter being kind of the most expansive, but it has to be persecution that's either state sponsored or enacted or where the state sort of just is unable to, to kind of address it. It has to be for one of those approved reasons. It can't just be kind of a generalized danger. And so a lot of the people who are migrating are kind of in this weird in-between zone of like, yes, they might be living in dangerous environments, they might be at risk, but a lot of them don't sort of really strictly qualify for this kind of post-World War II definition that we've had, you know, since since that era of kind of what it means to be an asylum seeker or refugee. And, and, and you know, the, the kind of the bigger picture thing is that um, there's going to be this issue with, you know, we're already having climate migration. So there's already a good number of people that are, that are migrating because of the sort of the slow moving cataclysm of climate change. And and there's also it's also kind of inseparable to have that and sort of political persecution because all these things end up mixing together, right? There's a drought that causes instability that causes economic collapse, which causes political instability. So there's not these sort of really neat differentiations over kind of what is a climate impact and what what isn't. But a lot of these people like probably wouldn't qualify for asylum. And so I think you know to some degree, uh, what's happening now is the administration and sort of just like the bipartisan consensus machine in, in Washington is drawing a line in the sand and saying, look, we were, you know, before this really becomes, you know, the the kind of the wave of migration that we expect in this kind of climate, you know, catastrophe future. Uh, and and by the way, sort of migration patterns now are going to look like child's play compared to what we're going to be seeing in the next, you know, 20, 30 years Sort of like drawing this status quo now of kind of a de facto, um, you know, understanding of of the claims as meritless, a de facto restrictionism, you know, kind of pushing what what we call border externalization. So coordinating with foreign militaries, foreign um, police forces, and, and and sort of border agents to kind of push people back before they even reach the U.S. border, because there's also this kind of out of sight, out of mind thing, right, with the Remain in Mexico program you saw. People that were kind of um, even just across the border—I mean, literally a hundred feet from the border—but there was far less public outrage because they weren't on U.S. soil. And so, I think there's also kind of that strategy of, like, you know, having these interlocking parts that kind of kind of exclude people in a way that that you know won't also engender kind of domestic political backlash. I think it is really
0: interesting to kind of explore the discrepancy between. I mean, number one, the way that conservatives talk about Democrats and Joe Biden's border policy versus the actual reality of it, like you pointed out, this whole uh, this app is just opening opening the floodgates. Um, I saw a tweet from Ben Shapiro the other day because now because of Twitter's for you algorithm, I get just served constant streams of right-wing content, which makes me understand. I didn't understand their views prior to that, and now I understand that these people are fucking monsters <laughs> even more than I did before. But no, Ben Shapiro saying like, oh, they're just like Biden supports open borders. There's just no other way of looking at his immigration policies. Uh, then that's the only conclusion you can come to. And it's just, it's really stunning when you actually compare that with the absolute ongoing horror show, that which which was happening under Obama, which continued and escalated under Trump. And still, like you're pointing out, has not really been dealt with to this day. Um, And not only noticing the discrepancy between the ways conservatives talk about this, but liberals as well, who like when Trump was president, they all wanted to talk about this immigration, these barbaric immigration policies and talk about these concentration camps and talk about these families being torn apart and the way that children are being abused and all these horrific uh, results of this kind of really barbaric uh, isolationist sort of immigration uh, policy and now that like now that Team Blue is in charge, it seems like if they're if if they aren't just completely ignoring the issue entirely, or it's just suggesting like well we voted for the good guys so the, the problem solved and not paying any attention to it, or they're coming up with these kinds of excuses oh they don't uh it's Joe Manchin uh, it's Trump's crisis oh there's nothing we can do all of a sudden the president is just totally powerless. It is really amazing. I think the way that like both liberals and conservatives have this totally distorted view of like what is happening at the border, and no one seems to really want to like address that in any way or actually deal with these contradictions really meaningfully. Um, you have conservatives that like you're pointing. out, just want to basically close the border to everyone, including people that are seeking asylum for these humanitarian reasons. Or we have liberals that are just like now that now that they've got the electoral result they wanted don't want to ever confront this issue or confront the horrible violence that people are still undergoing at the border um, and I imagine as, as two people that cover these that don't stop covering these issues depending on who's president that's got to be very frustrating for you to notice that kind of discrepancy as well
3: title 42 for example I mean it's like one of these things where this went from like Stephen Miller's you know greatest sweat dream like something that was you know Un- unachievable basically and, and <laughs> unprecedented completely several years ago to being kind of the, the new consensus policy in in Washington. And I feel like, um, you know, people, some of, you know, politics is to some, some extent about aesthetics. I mean, we know that. And so, you know, Biden is a person who, you know, he's not a, he's not out here, you know, kind of inflaming uh, tensions with, you know, around immigration. He's not going, you know, on, these big rallies and, and airplane hangars, and saying that, you know, Mexicans are rapists and blah, blah, blah. And so it's kind of easier to assume that his policies are radically different. And to some extent around immigration writ large, they are, for example, you know, Biden is like rebuilding the, the refugee system to some extent, which was sort of decimated both by Trump and the pandemic. And, you know, there have been reforms to like work visas and stuff, not anything super wholesale, but there have been, Shifts in the approach, however on on the sort of the border and humanitarian policy, it has been actually kind of a through line right He's been sort of set in place, but it's harder now, I think, to drum up kind of either support or even just kind of inform people about the sort of the through line that's happening because you know a lot of people are closing ranks, and you know I remember um very early on uh, in in Biden's presidency, you know kind of early twenty twenty one I wrote this piece for The Washington Post. Uh, that was about how, you know, day one, he signed multiple executive orders that rolled back um kind of, uh, you know, Trump era policies. And, you know, it was like it was very deliberately chosen as a day one thing. You know, the cameras were there. It was sort of this whole fanfare. And I wrote this piece pointing out simply that, you know, not really even making a, a, a very strong argument about it, but pointing out that a lot of these policies uh, you know, a lot of there were so many redundancies in the kind of the, the Trump era restrictions that doing this didn't fundamentally change things that much, right? That there were still all these kind of overlapping policies that functionally made it so that the, the these signings were more um, signaling than they were actually a, a shift, you know, at that moment, a concrete shift. You know, especially there were these sort of pandemic era uh, restrictions that blocked almost all immigration to the U.S. that you know, have since expired, but at the time, right, remained active. And I have rarely gotten as much just kind of heat for a piece that, that I've written, and and you know, mainly from kind of like liberals and and sort of people, you know, moderate Democrats and and sort of the Biden mold who were telling me, you know, how how dare you? Uh, you know, I guess you'd rather just have Trump. Uh, you know, I, I suppose that you you know you. You don't care about migrants even and that kind of thing. And I and I think, you know, uh, uh the thing with kind of like the border the Title Forty Two and sort of, you know, people like, for example, there was like a, a, a bill that was sponsored by uh Senators Kirsten Cinema, who uh, you know, big big fan of the show I'm sure, and um and Tom Tillis, um, you know, who who were basically uh, you know, trying to introduce legislation to extend Title 42 for two years uh, before it before it was uh, allowed to expire, along with the public health emergency, and that you know that legislation didn't even mention the the actual Title 42 the law. It was like basically just like we're maintaining these policies because we want to, no nexus to public health anymore. And the and you know what what ended up happening was there was this fear that there would be like this huge wave of people in the aftermath of, uh, of title 42. And that's because there were a lot of people waiting because of these unprecedented restrictions. And so it became kind of like the self fulfilling uh, crisis. It was like a, a cyclical crisis. It was like, we needed these crisis responses to the crises that the crisis responses were creating. And so, you know, we, we had like title 42, which was supposed to be an emergency order. And then, Uh, because you know of the fear that title 42 bottle the title 42 bottleneck would would cause a huge surge then we needed to extend title 42 and we needed to institute these this new transit ban that's the current controlling policy at the border because oh no you know we created this bottleneck and and now we're going to face the consequences of it so we actually need to increase the restrictions and so you know i think it, it one thing that you know your, your listeners should try to kind of keep in mind and remember is like, really, when was the last time that that any sort of national political figure of, of of prominence you know talked about the border in a way that wasn't framed as a crisis right i mean when was the last time we weren't on crisis footing it's like kind of these uh you know like strong men who have the uh you know an, an emergency powers uh, declaration the last three decades or something you know like walmart Gaddafi or something you know it's like it, it just like has lost any nexus to whatever it even um you know, putative excuse existed in the first place to have these policies in place. And so, you know, we can never exit the crisis is kind of where we've ended up now. You know, there's all, you know, it, We the government has gotten used to this kind of, um, you know, these extraordinary powers and it's not going to give them up. And so now we have this situation, which is is kind of a, a rehash of a Trump era policy called the transit ban where people are, um, if they've transited through a another country, that's a signatory of either the 1952 Refugee Convention or the 1967 Protocol, which you know, a bunch of countries are, including Mexico. So if you've gone through Mexico and you are sort of a non-Mexican migrant and you arrive at the at the border, you are now presumptively ineligible for asylum. Like you know, you have to overcome that presumption if you even want to apply for asylum, which you can only do. If you either have applied for and been rejected already for asylum and like at the other countries that you pass through or you use the CBP one app, which again is like, you know, has, you know, thousand appointments per day and is and, you know, is essentially trampling what was the spirit of asylum, which is that anyone could just show up and, and they have to have a process. Right. And so, uh, you know, this new policy has essentially prevented uh, the kind of surge that was predicted. And so we've actually seen border numbers go down in the aftermath of Title 42, which was the opposite of what was kind of predicted to happen. And the, and the reason for that is these new policies. And so now you have, you know, people like uh, uh, President Biden kind of saying mission accomplished, right? Like, oh, you know, we were afraid of the surge, we put in these draconian policies, there was no surge, you know, I'm expecting him to kind of furl a big mission accomplished banner or maybe at the border. <laughs> I mean, or, you know, I'm like half kidding, but like, you know, this, 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 you know, it's become so that the the kind of the very policies that he wants to cried uh, as, as sort of inhumane when they were under Trump are now, you know, kind of signature policies of his to say that he's actually, you know, he's a man of action, he's responding. And I think, you know, they're also getting a lot of cover uh, from people like, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, and you know people like uh, like DeSantis and and Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott get you know often painted as kind of hapless idiots or whatever, and that's to some extent true. But I think they were very deliberate in some of these kind of busing stra- stunts that were happening over the last year of kind of sending migrants without coordination to New York City and other places uh, because they were sort of expecting people like Adams to eventually kind of like sour on on sort of migration and and kind of turn public opinion in kind of blue, you know, big city, you know, kind of blue enclaves away from migration. And I think it kind of worked, right? I mean, a lot of people here in New York are seeing kind of like, you know, they hear every day from the media about the migrant crisis, they hear about how migrants are being put in, in, in hotels and school gyms. And, you know, a lot of people are kind of have arrived at this, at this kind of like rhetorical device of, oh, yes, I support migrants. And I, I support, you know, humanitarian migration, but you know, not like this. And so I think that was part of the, the strategy. And so kind of in tandem, we've reached a point where, a, a, a chunk of, of Biden's domestic political constituency and Biden himself have sort of, you know, inched towards a, kind of the embrace of the of the Trump era paradigm of restriction.
2: There is this profile that I read a while ago. Um, it was by Jonathan Blitzer in The New Yorker of a Biden administration official who resigned, who was um, a young I'm trying to remember if she was a lawyer. She was, I mean, I know she was a a policy person in some way, Um, but she ended up resigning after all of her kind of work and her ideas were were sidelined, even though she was the person who was responsible for the MPP wind down, MPP being the remain in Mexico policy that required people to wait in Mexico while their cases were um, adjudicated by the U.S. courts or the U.S. immigration courts. Um, And she was basically single-handedly in charge of like getting people who were on the MPP docket into the United States. It was like a couple dozen people each day paroled into the country. And she says in this profile that she'd worked in the uh, Obama white house as well. And um, when the Senate and the house were trying to pass this dream act bill, which kept failing because like a few senators kept voting against it time after time, um, There was this time when the Democrats agreed to fund, to increase funding for Border Patrol in exchange for basically for protections for DREAMers. Um, And she was really disappointed in Democrats for doing that. And then the Republicans were like, it doesn't matter what you give us because we're going to ask for more and we're going to keep accusing you of being open borders. And yet nobody who is high up in the Biden administration has seemed to realize that they can implement these Trump policies they can be incredibly restrictive. And no matter what they do, they're going to be accused of opening the border. So at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, like, well, are they doing this because they feel like they've been painted into a corner? Or are they doing this because this is what they want? Yeah, it's a great question. On the subject of work authorization specifically, the reason why there are so many asylum seekers in New York right now who can't find housing and who are being housed in, you know, old office buildings, or until a bunch of parents got all up in arms about it, school gyms, is that legally they're not permitted to work until they're they they can not even apply for work permits until their asylum application has been pending for at least 150 days, and then USCIS I think has. 30 days after that to respond minimum. So people are waiting for minimum six months so that they can even find jobs with which they can then pay rent and like be in this country while their cases are being processed. And that's not a Trump policy. That's not a Biden policy. That's like the longstanding law. So when we're looking at all of this, it's not just like the most recent president or the one before him implementing these policies to harm migrants. It's like the entire US immigration apparatus is designed in this way to weed people out, to um, exclude as many people as possible. And then, like all of these attempts to change it, when people even do attempt to change it in ways that make it less restrictive, are met with incredible, incredible pushback from both Democrats and Republicans.
1: I'm reminded of in 2017, late 2017, when we were approaching a fiscal cliff and Democrats were in the minority, but they had they had enough votes to block progress. Mitch McConnell, in exchange for support to uh, pass a short-term funding bill, said, okay, well, we'll vote on DACA in January or February. A couple of weeks went by and he's like, this isn't the time to <laughs> this isn't the time to vote on DACA. We need to wait a little bit longer. And <laughs> you know, people uh, activists were adamant that Democrats should not trust him on that deal. And sure enough, they were right. Nothing happened. And I'm also reminded at the same time, there was this huge groundswell of activism throughout the Trump years on immigration that is totally absent. And that speaks to the outrage that you saw when you wrote your column in The Washington Post, Felipe. Simply pointing out that while there are differences between Biden and Trump, some in some respects, This is just a continuation of the same old policies, maybe under a different name, maybe a slightly different aesthetic. But in effect, there are some policies that are very similar. People, I I, I don't know what it is. They just refuse to accept that this is the case. And it's it's deeply unfortunate. And with the negotiations then on the fiscal cliff in DACA to now, they're going to keep shifting right no matter what. And especially on this issue, because they've see, they see it as such an effective wedge issue. And we need people to understand, we need people in Congress, we need people at large, especially in the Democratic base, to understand they aren't going to negotiate in good faith, especially on an issue like this, because they see it as such an effective wedge issue.
0: I think what you're outlining is is the total vapidity of this kind of approach to creating policy like this. I think the Obama administration is the perfect example of that not just around issues of immigration this is where we're, what we're talking about but i think in general like at this this style of doing politics where yeah obama like expands this massive deportation machine right and and you know be, deports more people than any president uh, in in american history because you know the, the elites in the democratic party kind of have this idea that this is going to give us this credibility. So the right now, when we negotiate with them, they know that we're serious about this issue and we're deporting everybody. We're deporting absolutely everyone we can possibly think of. We're ensuring that this 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 like incredibly cruel machine is still functioning at high capacity. And then that will give us this kind of like uh, – Cachet when we negotiate, so we can negotiate with Republicans to pass a bipartisan deal that protects, you know, the good immigrants, the Dreamers, and the people that have no that that aren't that have done nothing wrong and protect them. And it just shows how, like, like you're pointing out, there's there's nothing that any liberal or Democrat can ever actually do to to get conservatives to negotiate with them in good faith on this. And you saw that completely blow up in their face. Um, and you're seeing the same situation now, and it's like, yeah. As you, I think that's a good way of looking at it too. It's like you got to wonder: is do they just is this just what they believe in doing? Are they just getting outworked, or you know, is the other side doing politics better than them, or do they just believe in this but they want to maybe put a slightly more progressive sheen on this like incredibly cruel and barbaric uh, immigration? Uh, machine that whatever party the president is is a part of they're they're ultimately in charge of
2: i think i think what's going on right now is also a really good caution against kind of valorizing one group of immigrants over another or kind of like accepting this premise that like there is a group of quote-unquote criminal aliens and then there's also a different distinct group of people who are worthy of humanitarian protection whether they be dreamers or or what have you um because like i mean if you look at it Objectively, like the people who are arriving at the border are fleeing horrible, horrible circumstances. If you talk to them, their situations are like incredibly sympathetic like in a a different political environment, they would be like the kind of like poster children for like what the Democratic Party would want to be doing at the border. I mean, under Trump, they were like, they were they were families, you know, they were babies, they were like people who were fleeing very horrible circumstances who we have uh, vowed to protect and are bound to protect under both domestic and international law, and now under Biden, suddenly those sympathetic circumstances don't matter or don't register or no longer exist, even though in a lot of countries because of COVID and because of the global economy, things have only gotten worse. Um, and I think that all and maybe it didn't start with the Dream Act, but like this idea of like so- selecting one group of immigrants or of non citizens and saying, "Well, they're especially deserving of humanitarian protection because of how virtuous they are," um, allows for people who want immigration restriction to then kind of like turn that on its head and make any asylum seeker, for example. Uh, A potential drug smuggler or a potential criminal or, you know, how they're always talking about prayer rugs at the border and how ISIS is coming um, and how they're taking advantage of how open the border is to like infiltrate the United States.
0: I must say, too, there seems to be a pretty big discrepancy between, uh, you know, you're talking about how this kind of like humanitarian immigration system and people that are applying for asylum are not really treated as being eligible even if they meet these criteria. and the way this kind of massive bureaucracy is used as an excuse oh it's just it's so unwieldy and there's so many people and it's just not possible even if we want to it's just not possible to bring in all these people that, that are claiming asylum strangely weirdly uh over the last year and a half It was actually no problem for hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian immigrants to get resettled all across America, and the system somehow managed to find a way to accommodate all these people. And To be clear, people that are fleeing war zones should be able to get uh, resettled in America or Canada or or claim refugee status, but it is pretty interesting the way these excuses are thrown around about why it's, it's just totally impossible to bring in these asylum seekers on the southern border because of this vast kind of labyrinthine bureaucratic uh, system. But when it comes to Ukrainian immigrants fleeing war there, it seems like this system, this system is able to accommodate them just fine. And you got to wonder what the difference is between these two groups of immigrants and why one group is allowed to uh, immigrate and not be subjected to these same kinds of uh, practices and why one group is just constantly uh, you know, held in this bureaucratic uh, limbo. Kind of interesting,
3: you know. We like we 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 can't forget, right? That that you know, sort of all of the kind of like minutiae of the policy aside, the 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 person, the the sort of um, mastermind of all this is 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 Miller, who is basically a white, you know, a a great replacement guy, right? Who you know, a really kind of an adherent to the idea that you know the the sort of the traditional American population is being replaced you know either by sinister forces or just by inertia and you know and incompetence or whatever right and that uh something needs to be done about this and and this is kind of an animating philosophy of his in fact you know now he's uh you know out of uh out of the white house and of course he's got his own sort of law institute and he's trying to sort of sue on behalf of people who've been discriminated against for being white and all this sort of stuff and so you know i mean we, obviously we can't separate that from from the way that the policy was tailored just like we haven't been able to separate kind of the issue of, of kind of race and and more broadly like who is an undesirable and who's a sort of a, a desirable from the the entire history of you know u.s immigration policy dating back to the first ever laws I mean one of the first the first kind of major federal law there was an, a citizenship act of 1870 but then sort of the first kind of actual federal US law that controlled who could actually enter the country was the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's right there in the name, right? It was the first, the founding kind of federal law of, of, of you know, around immigration was about excluding a specific subset of people on account of their kind of national origin and race. And so, you know, that's never been not part of the system, right? And it isn't not part of the system now. Um you know, with the the Ukrainians, like, yeah, there was a, a a great mobilization. You know, they were they were given a humanitarian parole, in, in you know, many of them, uh, which allowed them to work immediately, which is something that still hasn't happened for the you know the vast majority of of kind of asylum seekers that are there in the country. Uh, and you know, they were actually rather infamously excluded from Title Forty Two expulsions. Uh, Pretty quickly after a few. So a few of them had been expelled. There was this big public outcry or whatever. And then they were like basically categorically excluded while the people kept being expelled. Uh, And, you know, I mean, like, look, if you look at the Afghans, for example, like, you know, we, the United States had a very direct involvement in Afghanistan you know, as direct as you can possibly have, you know, an occupation. And and we have basically thrown most of the sort of uh, Afghan allies to the wolves here, right? We, had, we even have a special immigrant visa only for sort of Afghan and Iraqi, um, you know, interpreters and people who aided in the war effort. And, you know, a lot of those visas were issued, but there are a lot of parole applications for people who either didn't qualify or who weren't processed fast enough before the kind of collapse of Kabul that, um, that have been denied or have gone unfilled. And so, you know, we, we weren't able to move heaven and earth for the Afghans. Um, and, you know, like, um, uh, you know, you, you can point to, to kind of these discrepancies throughout history, right? I mean, you know, you look at, uh, even during the eighties and nineties, right. The, uh, you know, Asylum rate for for, uh, Cubans, for example, fleeing Cuba was like almost 100%, maybe not quite 100%, but functionally 100%. Whereas, you know, and for the SSR as well, whereas, you know, asylum grant rates for people from like El Salvador and Nicaragua and stuff were were abysmal. I mean, El Salvador, I think, had a 3% grant rate for several of the years where they were in a literal civil war, except that, you know, the people who were fleeing oftentimes were fleeing the, you know, the right wing military government that the U S was actively supporting. And so, you know, these things have never been, uh, uh, you know, uh, separate from, from these types of considerations about, you know, the, the politics of who gets to come in and, and why, and all these sorts of things. Um, I said something about, oh yeah. So, and, and also like, I think the, the, the Biden administration is kind of terrified to be seen as sort of extending uh, a hand to kind of, to kind of the asylum seekers, even when they're kind of already here, and, and so part of this whole kind of, of of sentiment of chaos that has evolved from all of the busing and all of the people that are kind of you know being accommodated in New York and elsewhere is that you know once they're kind of have entered and if they haven't been subjected to Title Forty Two or whatever, the government is basically going completely hands off, right? I mean, FEMA is giving you know a, a few hundred million to to cities that are affected, but but the U. You know the federal government has an enormous infrastructure that could be mobilized to actually help these people arrive and integrate fully. You know, ICE has a fleet of of planes that they contract for deportations that they could use for, for kind of, you know, moving people around the country. And there's a whole refugee resettlement infrastructure that basically is in place, but which we're not really tapping into for, for sort of asylum seekers. And so part of that also, I think is that, you know, they really don't want to be seen, as like creating a draw for people to actually come. And I mean, this isn't, you know, earth shattering stuff. We had Kamala Harris, you know, going to Guatemala and saying, don't come. My message to you is like, don't come or whatever it is. She said it was something along those lines. And so, you know, I think that that like, you know, again, with the whole kind of crisis thing, it also is kind of like self-inflicted. I mean, you know, this could have been handled a different way, it could be handled a different way now. But it, but it isn't, right? We, we, we won't actually mobilize in the way that we could for these these populations.
2: And, and these are countries that are very close to us. They are geographically our neighbors, um, whereas Ukraine is very, very far away. Ukrainians are much more likely to want to resettle somewhere in Europe. Um, so you have to ask yourself, I mean, why the, the number of Cuban and Haitian, Venezuelan and Nicaraguans is so much lower than the number of Ukrainians. And I mean, the the hurdles or the barriers to like even getting this, you have to have a US sponsor? They have to like um, pledge to be financially responsible for you. If you can't be financially responsible for yourself, you have to have a valid passport. There are all of these things that the administration can point to, to be like, oh, see, we are expanding humanitarian migration. But unlike asylum, this doesn't get you citizenship. After two years, like you could be out
1: lipe and gabby thank you so much for helping break this down and helping us understand what's going on we encourage people to check out and subscribe to uh, borderlines so you can continue to get uh, the best and most concise information on the immigration front aside from borderlines where can people find you both and follow your work
3: all right so um I'm on Twitter still for the time being, you know, to be seen, but, uh, you know, it is a hard addiction to break, but so it's, you know, Felipe DLH, so i D-L-H. Uh, I'm also a member of the New York Daily News editorial board, so you can sort of check out our editorials, which I will caveat as saying that they're, of course, not exclusively my opinion. They are our consensus opinion, uh, so, you know, don't rank me over the coals, but, you know, it's, you know, you can, you can go check me out there. Uh, as well. And then I write for a variety of other, you know, kind of publications. I've written a good amount for The Intercept, The New Republic, um, The Baffler, every once in a while, more kind of essay type things, and you know, a bunch of other outlets.
2: Um, I'm on Twitter at GabbyDVJ. It's Gabby, G-A-B-Y, one B, not two, D-V-J. Um, I write for a couple different publications. Um, I've written for The Verge, The Baffler, The Drift the nation um yeah thank you guys so much for having us
1: pleasure to have thank you. you thanks uh, thanks all <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass canon our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening.